Bibles, we're going to be back in Revelation chapter 1. So open up your Bibles today if you haven't already. We're just picking up right where we left off last week. So we're going to be in verses 4 to 8 again. And if you remember, the passage that we have in this section is a greeting from the throne of God. It's a greeting from the throne room of God, from the triune God. And this is, of course, preceding the passages in Revelation that caused so many people to like fret and to worry. It's before all of those difficult passages that are sometimes confusing to so many that people speculate on. It's before the specific prophetic messages to the seven churches that will come up in chapter 3 and 4, obviously. And when people talk about the book of Revelation, it's often not these verses that are fueling their thoughts. And I think that's unfortunate, really. Because this is an important text for the church, this greeting from the throne room. And I'm grateful for this greeting because it's helping to set the tone for the rest of the book. It's helping us to rightly understand the rest of the letter, a a letter that's often misunderstood in our day. Because the section that we have here in 4 to 8, it's even expounding upon, it's it's building upon what John also said in his general introduction, his general greeting. And in that greeting from John... He informed us that this is a letter that is about revealing Jesus Christ. And it's one that will be a blessing to his people, not to all people of the world, but to his people, to people who are members of the new covenant. Not everyone in the world, then, but to those who are reading and hearing and keeping this words in the prophetic letter, that will be it will be a blessing to those people, to God's people. And now we have this second greeting. A greeting from the throne of God, a personal greeting to the, re- to the readers, to the hearers, and to those keepers of the letter. And it's from the triune God himself. And he reminds them, he reminds us up front, that there is grace and peace to us from him. And that the events that will, be, that will be recorded in this book, the ones that terrify so many people, they are all actually existing behind this backdrop of grace and peace from God to us. And it's this grace and peace given to his people. So in this greeting from the triune God, special attention is given as well, as we're going to see here um, this this evening and then next week, we're going as well, to the person and work of Jesus Christ, which makes sense because this is a book about revealing Jesus Christ. In this greeting from the throne room, more is said about Jesus than is said about the Father and the Spirit. And again, I think that that's understandable to me at least because the, the name of the book is the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ, or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Hopefully you remember that. So let's get to it. We're just going to read the passage again. Tonight we're really going to be focusing on verse 5 alone, but we'll read the whole greeting from the throne room, and then we'll pray, ask God, asking God to, to God to bless our time in the Word. So the reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 4 in Revelation chapter 1, says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and in every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
that ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he grant us understanding and and help us to glorify him through it. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your time to be in your word tonight, and we confess how much it is that we need direction from you, Lord. Uh, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the day-to-day things of life, to be distracted, to go through our day not thinking of you. And we pray that you would change that in us, Lord, that you would help us tonight to know Christ better and to be all the more um, humbled by that and grateful to you for the great love that you have loved us with. Help us to understand tonight, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so our focus for tonight is Again, it's on that latter half of the throne room of the screen from the throne room of God. So let me remind you of the outline I put forward last week. Uh, we The first three things we covered last week, but the fourth thing is the person of Jesus Christ, and the fifth is the work of Jesus Christ, the sixth is the return of Jesus Christ, and the seventh point in the outline is an affirmation of Jesus' deity. Now, we're only going to be able to cover point four tonight. I was intending to do the rest of it, but there's just too much here, so Lord willing, we'll be able to finish Point five, six, and 7 maybe next week, or we'll see how long it takes. But I, I hope that this section does for you what it does for me. And, and that is for me right out the gate tonight, um, and, and these coming weeks reading what we just read, it gets me pretty excited. Our text for tonight is declaring these specific and these wondrous things about Christ Jesus. I mean, think about it. What greater topic is there that we could be discovering and, and learning about? What is it that exists that makes us more excited than the person and the work of Jesus Christ? And, and there probably are things that do make us more excited than that, of course. Uh, we are creatures who have a nature that is fallen, even those of us who have been born again. But that should serve to humble us because these things of Christ are so lofty and so good and, and so important for us to understand. God bless you. But this is how this book is beginning. This is how it starts. And if we were to just like personally read through the book of Revelation, did anybody try to do that? Did anybody try to read through it all in one sitting? If you haven't done that yet, still you should try to do it. It only takes you about a half an hour, I think. But it can help you to get the big picture of the whole book. But if you were to just read through Revelation in in a sitting, you would probably just read right through this section and not really be captured by what is said here. But we're going to go slower than a simple read through. And hopefully that will help us to not get caught up in the details of Revelation, forgetting these important truths as we are so prone to do. Because again, nobody really thinks of this section when we talk about the book of Revelation. So first, there are three things which we read of, which describe the second person of the Trinity. Now, there's many more things that we can say about Jesus, of course, rather than just these three descriptions that are listed here. But these are the things that are chosen to be listed by John through the inspiration of the Spirit. And these are things that are very important to help us frame our thoughts of of worship about Christ and of Christ as we read the rest of this book. And so we read that he is the faithful witness, that he's the firstborn from the dead, and that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. There's a couple things to notice up front here. First, that these three descriptions are or they seem to be a testimony to the offices that Christ Jesus executes as our redeemer. So in other words, he's he's the faithful witness, which would then be really the execution of the office of the prophet. He faithfully faithfully reveals by word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. He reveals God himself. He's uh, firstborn from the dead, 
uh, which speaks to his execution of the office of priest, because it is through his sacrificial death that he's able to be the firstborn from the dead. And as the firstborn from the dead, he is resurrected. And since he is resurrected, he lives to make intercession for us. He prays for us. And lastly, it's very obvious, this one, is that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, in which, of course, he executes his office of the king. He subdues us to himself and he rules over us. And the point of Revelation, which it entails throughout the book, is that Christ is, true, is truly king over all, and he'll one day consummate his kingdom. Secondly, we have an allusion back to Psalm 89 here. Uh, that psalm, Psalm 89, I don't even know if it, if it means something to you off the top of your head, but like that from, from me just saying it, but it's an especially high song of praise for God and his attributes. And there's a chunk in it that is like an illusion or a revelation of the Son of God and his work. And if we had more time, we'd read the whole section. But let me just quote um, verse 27 and then 36 and 37, because those verses mention the same things as, as these um, descriptions of Jesus that are mentioned here in verse 5. So Psalm 89, 27 says, And I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. So you have those two descriptors right there, right? He's the firstborn. It doesn't say firstborn from the dead. It's, it's in the Old Testament. It's veiled a little bit, this reality. And then he's the highest of the kings of the earth. If one is the highest of the kings, that means he's over them all, right? He rules them all. That's the same thing that's being communicated here in Revelation uh, 1.5. And then 36 and 37. 37 is really what's quoted from, but I think 36 helps you to understand the context a little bit better. So Psalm 89, 36, 37 says, His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And then it says Salah in the psalm. Um, offspring here, or it's seed in the King James Version. It's the offspring of David that is in view, and it's singular. If you were to read the rest of the passage in the context, it talks about the offspring of David. So it's not talking about, you know, many offspring. It's talking about a singular offspring, a singular seed. It's pointing to Christ, who is the son of David that eternally sits on the throne. And so just like the moon reflects the light of the sun, which is interesting, right, that the psalmist had an understanding of that here so many years before, you know, science would quote unquote, um, you know, affirm that that is true. The moon, we read, is, is then is a faithful witness to the sun in the skies. And so Christ is a faithful witness to uh, the Father. And so let's consider this first description, that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is called a faithful witness. Now, when we, hear, when we hear the term witness, we probably all think of a similar thing. We probably all have a similar idea about what is meant by witness, maybe a key person who describes an event, perhaps, perhaps especially in light of a crime. So like a witness in a court case or something like that, or even just simply one who provides a testimony on behalf of someone else or something else, someone who sees something and then tells others about it, like an observed event. And definitely that usage is in view here and actually more, but first note that he's called a, a faithful witness. Think of how important that is, that Christ Jesus is not just a witness, but he is a faithful witness. And faithful in this context isn't simply meaning full of faith. It's in regard to Christ's trustworthiness. It's the same sort of relational idea as a that, like 
in a marriage, right? At, at how a man is supposed to be faithful to his wife, not cheating on her, not hiding things from her. Uh, the wife should have joy in being able to trust a faithful husband. And the faithfulness of Christ Jesus, of course, is even greater than any earthly example that it can fully capture. Because he is the God-man. and He is the husbandman of the bride, the bride being the church. He's completely without sin. Without any shadow of turning, he is faithful. Hebrews 3 declares this among many other places. Since Jesus is God, any declaration of God being faithful would appropriately be applied to Jesus as well. But consider the point that Hebrews 3 is making. At the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3, the author there is making the point that Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. He's faithful to the Father, in other words, in a way that's greater than what Moses was faithful. Moses was also a witness uh, for the Father, for God, and he was faithful. But the point that the author of the Hebrews is making is that Jesus is, is counted worthy of much more glory than Moses, as verse 3 says. And if we know our Bibles, uh, that's obvious that Jesus is a greater testimony, a greater faithful witness, because Moses wasn't without sin. Moses at points failed to faithfully provide a, a witness of the Lord God. He didn't always do the right thing. And Moses himself even prophesied that one day a prophet greater than him would come. He did that in Deuteronomy 18 towards the end of his life. He, he prophesied to God's people, letting them know that a prophet like him, but greater would come. And he meant Jesus at that point. But in Hebrews 3, 6, we read this. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So Christ Jesus himself is the faithful one. He is faithful over God's house as a son. And we, the church, those people who truly are believing and trusting in Christ, we are that house. The church, the true church, are people who hold fast to Jesus Christ. And our boast and our confidence is in, is in him, Hebrews 3 says. It's not in our flesh. It's not in our deeds. It's not in our good works. But we are confident in Christ's work, his holy life, his atoning work on the cross, his resurrection. And so we boast in him because we have really no reason to boast in ourselves. So Christ Jesus is faithful to his church, and specifically, he's the faithful witness. And actually, we could say this too about this word witness here, because um, it's more than just the idea of bearing a testimony. It's for, we get the word martyr from the Greek word that is translated witness here. And so Jesus is not just simply a witness. He's a witness unto death. And it's going to mention this again in Revelation 3, so maybe we'll talk more about it when we get uh, to that to that text. But it's it's he's he's faithful even to the point of death as well, too, in revealing what he does reveal. And so when we think of this faithfulness, it's good, I think, that we could think of it from these two categories as well. Uh, just There's more that we could think of, but two I wanted to use for tonight. Number one, he is faithful. He's a faithful witness of a life lived under the law of God. You know, what might that look like to live under the law of God and what might it result in? John 6.38 reads, and this is Jesus talking. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
So he didn't live in order to accomplish some earthly will. That isn't what Jesus did. He didn't live by some human invented standard, though he is truly a human being. He lived according to God's will, and it brought him either praise from people, from those who love God, or it brought him persecution from people, from people who ultimately hate God. Remember what he said to the Pharisees who were rejecting them. They said that they appealed to Abraham. They said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus then said, well, if Abraham's your father, then you look forward to my day because Abraham did. And he said, in fact, you are of your father, the devil. And the reality was those, those Pharisees, even though they were the religious teachers of that time, they were not people who were true to God Almighty. And you, you see that in their reaction to Jesus. Uh, some people, we could say, were perhaps indifferent, at least while they were trying to make a judgment upon Christ. Either, you know, they didn't praise him or they didn't persecute him, not right away, at least not that we read of. But everyone, at the end of examining Jesus, if they truly do it, will either praise him or have disdain for him. That's true for us as well, too. There are many people who who barely examine Jesus, and then maybe they don't think much about him. But if you truly looked into the life of Jesus, what he did and what he taught, you would either praise him for it, and that would be because of the testimony that God has worked in your life to show you that what Jesus did and what he taught was true and good, or you would not. You would think Jesus is a is a jerk, a bigot, you know, not God, because why would God ever you know judge people like that? So you would persecute him. And the reason that's the case is because of how he lived his life and what he taught. And we should know, by the way, as well, the same will be true for us. You know, there is something wrong when people who profess to be Christian have everyone like them. And there are people like that. I was just talking with Steve earlier this week um, about, you know, a pastor named Stephen Furtick, who was not a good pastor, not commending him to you at all. But he was recently you know, labeled as one of the top 100 soul, um, what was it called? Soul heroes or something. I don't know. Something along that top 100 soul influencers in, in the United States by Oprah Winfrey. And Oprah Winfrey doesn't, you know, love God. I mean, she's a heretic and the things that she teaches and believes. And he's listed with all these other people as well. Our Lord Jesus didn't have everyone like him. And he is much greater and better than any of us. And it can mean a number of different things if, you know, if everyone likes you. But at some level, it means that a person is not openly living as a Christian in some regard. Because the Bible is clear. Whoever desires to live godly will suffer persecution. Second Peter, or Second Timothy 3.12. Christ is our master, and we're not above him. We're not better than him. If he was persecuted, and he was, then we shouldn't be surprised when we are. We shouldn't. We should be surprised and we should be thankful when we're not persecuted for living a godly life. If we are living a godly life, which sometimes that does happen, that could happen theoretically at certain times in your life. If we aren't living godly lives and we don't have a love for God, then there is no reason to be persecuted for being a Christian, right? John will even be dealing with these things later in Revelation. That's part of the, the, the tension that exists in Revelation is the persecution the church has to go through for living for Christ. And so he's going to be dealing with those exact things. Um, another way we may think of Christ being a faithful witness is, is in how he reveals the Father. He was a faithful witness to the Father. Now, there are many things that reveal God. 
that we may say reveal the Father. Uh, the heavens declare his glory, we read in the Psalms. Adam revealed God in the garden. He had a chance to reveal him beyond that had he not disobeyed and plunged all of mankind into sin and into rebellion. Noah was a witness to God with the ark. Remember when he was building the ark and the rest of the world was unbelieving around him and and didn't see a need for that. Uh, Israel, the nation, was to reveal God. But all of these and, and more types of Christ in the Old Testament, they all fell short of the sort of revealing that Jesus would do. Jesus alone is the truly faithful witness to the Father. Uh, even the church today, like the, if you are a Christian today, you are part of the church. The, the church is a supposed to reveal the Father to the world. That's part of we're supposed to hold the banner of Christ high. We're not supposed to hide our faith under a bushel or put a or put our light under a bucket. But even so much as and, and Jesus, of course, is part of the church. He's the head of the church. But even so much as the church is supposed to provide a witness by what we teach and how we live we're still not as good as Jesus is, as being a, a witness of, a, of revealing the Father to the world. Listen to John fourteen nine. okay? This is, you know, the same John who wrote the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And so John 14, not verse 9, he says this, and he's talking with his disciples at this point. He says to him, to Philip, He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Philip was saying, show us the Father to Jesus. And Jesus says, Philip, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. You see how closely and how accurately he was a witness to who the Father is. It's stunning, isn't it, actually? That to see Jesus, in other words, to know Jesus, is to know the Father. It, it's, it's to have seen the Father. And we can't see the Father because the Father is spirit, right? He doesn't have a body like man. But So what it means is to know what God is like. That's how faithfully Jesus reveals the Father, how faithfully he witnesses who the Father is. If you understand Jesus rightly, only by the Spirit, of course, then you know God rightly. Colossians 1.15 says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We'll save that latter half for just a moment. But note, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You can't look at, you can't, anywhere with your eyes right now, look around and see God, right? You, you, we all understand that, right? We don't want to be those types of spiritualist type of people who say, oh, I see God in the trees. I see God in the sunset. no. You see what God does in those things, but you don't see God himself. Creation is not the creator. There's a distinction that we must always maintain there. But for a time period on the earth to accomplish redemption, Jesus, who was truly God and truly man, was the image of the invisible God that people could see. And it's not to say that they saw his divinity when they looked at him. They saw the divine works he could do, certainly, that no man could do. Remember what one of the Pharisees came to him and said, certainly we know you're from God because nobody could do the works that you do if, if they were not from God. So they saw that aspect of him, but when they saw him with their eyes, they just saw his humanity. 
but he was the image of the invisible God. You see, this is how the Lord made redemption possible, that it's only through the Son of God. Jesus is the image of the Father, and to know Jesus is to know the Father. This is why there's salvation in no other name, because there's no one that is a faithful witness like the Lord Jesus. There is none that can compare to Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it would lead Jesus to accurately say, this is also in John 14. This is right before his engagement with Philip there. In verse 6 to 7, there he says to him, again, we're reading to Thomas at this point. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you'd have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So Jesus is telling you something that, of course, this is the reason why, why the Jewish people want to kill him. Because he said things like that. If you've seen me, if you know me, then you know the Father. He's making himself as central uh, to knowing the Father. I mean, how, well, how more clear can you be? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't come to God through Abraham. You can't come to God through your good works, through obeying the law. You can only come to God through Christ. Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the trustworthy revealer of the Father who lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to all of God's law. There's no other way to the Father because Jesus alone is that perfect witness. He perfectly loved the Father and loved his fellow man as well. And so he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's why each and every person, if they are to be saved, they need Christ. That's why we all need Christ if we are to be saved. We need his life, his death, and his resurrection all applied to us through the faith that he gives us. And we know that the Father was certainly pleased with the ethics and the morals of Jesus. There's no, there's no doubt about that, his only begotten Son. And in that, he was also pleased with how Jesus revealed the Father himself to the rest of the world as well. Two times during Jesus' earthly ministry, the Father declares from glory, the glory of heaven, this is my beloved Son, in, in whom I am well pleased. I remember at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, these two declarations that he is, this is his beloved Son. He's pleased in him. Why? Again, because he was a faithful witness to the Father, to his law, and to his character and nature. Um, and it's brothers and sisters, it is our, it's our great joy to hear that exclamation from the Father concerning the Son. Our salvation is not dependent upon us being a faithful witness of the Father. How many of us here would like that to be the case? Like would like to depend on our ability to explain the gospel or our ability to understand doctrine and theology perfectly to be the reason by which we're saved? That's bad news. Because none of us are, is, are good enough to understand God fully and completely and to reveal him perfectly. But Christ Jesus did that for us. And because he is a faithful witness, we can have assurance of our salvation. It's because Christ perfectly executes the office of a prophet that we can know the Father and understand what is required. So praise be to God. Now the second description is that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Colossians 1.15, which we already Red also affirmed this, and so did Psalm 89.27. And this is one of those areas that could easily be confused, but it, it really it shouldn't be. It's not demanded that it be confusing, at least. That's the case. 
Uh, typically, when we think of the firstborn, we think of the oldest child in the family, right? So Silas, Christian, who else is the firstborn here? Sabrina, you're not in Marcelino. I said, said your brother already. Uh, myself, Steve, Adam, they're the firstborn. And of course, firstborns are the best of all the sibling sets. Everyone knows that's true. Um, but, you know, but seriously, um, that's not what is talked about here when it's saying that Jesus is the firstborn. See, obviously, there's a clear example while, what are you, thirdborn, fourthborn? I don't know. This is nowhere even near the top. <laughs> it does. It just, it's just, it's all bad. So, this isn't, this idea of the firstborn isn't what's in reference here about Jesus. Jesus isn't the firstborn as if he's the oldest of all the created beings. In respect to his divinity, he doesn't have parents like we do, right? Remember from last time, he's of the same essence of the Father and the Spirit, the same subsistence of, of the Father and the Spirit, the same being. He's equal with them. He's one with them. He's not created. He's the creator. Of course, though, in the incarnation, he has a father and a mother. But even then, it's not in the same way as us. He was born of a virgin. Excuse me. Properly speaking, it didn't take a man and a woman to make his body. It was divinely and sovereignly generated. But this description is that of the firstborn from the dead. And that's the important clue as to what it means. As Denny Burke notes, Jesus did what no person has ever done. He died, he rose from the dead, and he stayed alive. All right, you're a firstborn. You can stop now. He rose... He rose to never die again, and that's precisely related to the fact that he never did anything to deserve death in the first place. He died so that others may live, because we were all dead, right? We were dead spiritually. We were on the way to dying physically as well as soon as we're born. We're separated from God due to sin, the, the guilt we inherited from Adam. But Christ's death redeemed us from the penalty of sin, from the wrath of God. And so it's true that there were people who died and were brought to life in the time of the Old Testament, of course. Elijah raised child from the dead. Uh, same thing, New Testament. Lazarus was risen from the dead. There was other people who were raised from the dead in the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. Even in the case of like Enoch and Elijah, people who didn't die, but people who were caught up to heaven, right, into the intermediate state. We don't have all the details there about that. But Christ Jesus is different. He was born. He lived. He's unique in this. He died, he was buried, and then he was resurrected in a glorified body, and he didn't die again. Remember how his body was different. There were times when he was present with his disciples after the resurrection, and they didn't immediately recognize him. Yet he still bore those holy scars in his body. Uh, the resurrection, the unique place in it as the firstborn, establishes Jesus with a sovereign position over the cosmos. More on that in a moment, but as G.K. Beale notes, the title and description of the firstborn of the dead means that he is the inaugurator of the new creation by means of his resurrection. You see, he's not the only one who will be resurrected, right? Correct? We aren't like the Sadducees who deny the resurrection, right? No, Jesus was resurrected, and all who are united to him through faith will also be resurrected one day as well. That's the point the Apostle Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll probably be there in a few months on Sunday mornings. I'm looking forward to it because our hope as Christians is made certain in the resurrection. Our sister Joan, 
passed away last night at, I got the text at least around 11, 15 p.m. Um, but in her body, if you saw her over the past two years, year and a half, she was deteriorating. She was very small. Um, her body wasn't the same you know, body. She was wheelchair bound. But she was here joyfully, always excited to be at church when she could come. But she wasn't the same the same way that she looked when we met her, which is only like seven, eight years ago. But the hope that she has in Christ is because he was resurrected. She too is going to have a resurrected body. That won't be the frail body that she existed in up to the time of her race for Christ being over. Our hope as Christians is made certain in the resurrection of Christ. It means that his atoning sacrifice was accepted and that he was certainly without sin. Because if he, if he wasn't without sin, then he wouldn't have resurrected. And his, his atoning sacrifice wouldn't have been accepted is what that means. But he was the spotless lamb who went to Calvary's cross so that we can be redeemed and spend an eternity in heaven with him. The new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. Because he was resurrected, we too can know that we'll be resurrected because Christ is the firstborn. He's the firstborn of the dead, and we with faith will all follow him in that one day with a glorified body. He is first, we are not. He is preeminent, we are not. We have already been made alive with him, as Ephesians 2 notes, but we're not yet glorified. And, and we know, yet we know that one day that glorif glorification will come because Jesus has been glorified. And his glorification as the firstborn of the dead is so important for us, friends. As Ian Paul notes in his commentary, he says, Christ Jesus is the pioneer and the guarantor of a hope for new life for all who trust in him. Well, how do we know that Christ is the guarantor of, of hope of new life for all who trust in him? We establish that he's the pioneer. He's the first, right? Pioneer is someone who goes first. That's already been said. He's the firstborn. But we have this guarantee in Christ because he is the firstborn. And he is in his glorified estate. What we know then, because that is true, is that he now lives to make intercession for us. As the author to Hebrews says in chapter 7, you understand what it means to be in the new covenant with Christ Jesus, right? If you are, in fact, in the new covenant, it means that Jesus is literally is, is living for the glory of the Father to intercede for you, to persevere you, to stand in a position of praying for you. Remember what Jesus said while he was on the earth even? When, when Peter was going to fall, Jesus said, well, Satan desired to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. Satan couldn't take Peter from Christ, and neither can Satan or our own fleshly desires take us from God either, because Jesus has grace extended to you to save you. The work of salvation that he's begun in you, it's not up for you to finish it. Christ will finish it. As he executes the office of great high priest on your behalf, you can be sure, brother and sister in the faith, that you are in God's hands and nothing can take you from it. None is greater or none is mightier than Jesus. And as the firstborn of the dead, he'll make sure that all the elect follow him in that. None can thwart him. None can subvert his plans or his purposes. And that really is the point of the next description in our text, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings in the earth. And note. It's not that he will be ruling the kings of the earth, is it? Some people teach that Jesus isn't actually reigning and ruling right now, that he's just kind of doing that, but he's not actually ruling and reigning, but he will in the future when he comes back for the millennium. Well, that would be wrong, and it flies in the face of the revelation given to us here in 1.5. 
we've been over this before, but the millennium is theological shorthand to describe the time that we're now living in, the time in between Christ's first and second coming. And right now, Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Right now, he is this. All authority, whether spiritual or physical, are under his dominion and authority. Turn with me to Matthew 28. We've been over this before, but it bears repeating. Jesus, as God, the Son of God, that is specifically, he has always had authority over all things. There is never a moment in which Jesus was not sovereign and in control of all things that have ever existed over all of heaven and earth. But uniquely, because he has been incarnated and he is the federal or the covenant head of the new covenant in which he represents those who are saved, the new covenant you know, is the covenant of grace, uh, being synonymous, of course. Just think, we're saved by grace not by our works, but by grace, the covenant of grace that saves us. And the new covenant is the covenant of grace revealed. And since Jesus has done this, since he's the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead, and we see him uniquely as king now, as the God-man, in a way that would lead him to say this in Matthew 28. This is AM 18 to 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Christ Jesus is king now. He was king over all the kings of the earth when Revelation was written. And this was especially an important declaration, as you, you might remember, the Roman emperor at the time that this book was written was a man named Domitian. He believed that he should be worshipped. He, he was the Roman king, the Roman emperor, and he set up laws that would make people say to him, Dominus et Deus, which means in Latin, Lord or Master and God. And he would have people calling it. So he would have people who are Christians call him this. And if you didn't, you can imagine what would happen, right? Would it be okay for a Christian to call Domitian um, Dominus et Deus? It wouldn't, right? Well, our confession is that Christ is Lord and God. And God is saying here in this greeting from the throne room that Domitian isn't God, that Caesar is never God, but Jesus is God and Lord. The United States government isn't your God. Jesus is the ruler of all governments. And that's why Romans 13 calls governments God's servants. In the Greek, it's the word deacon, God's deacons. And by the way, we don't have time to get fully into this now. We will later through Revelation, I'm sure. But that's why rebellion to wicked governments is actually glorifying to God. And this requires discernment because how do you exactly determine when it's the time to rebel against a tyrannical government? But a government is supposed to uphold laws in accordance with the moral law, with what God has revealed as good and true. They don't have the freedom to create laws contrary to Christ's rule. They are God's deacons, as Romans 13 says, and Christ is ruler over all kings. Now, here's a problem that we should see in light of this. It's not really a problem, but a place of possible confusion, I guess. Because when we look at the kingdom of God, which God is building, we see that there are many kings and nations who don't recognize Jesus as king, right? There are many people that we would say today don't believe Jesus is ruling over them as king. 
And we would see the same pattern in play here when Revelation was written as well. And so in one sense, we see all of heaven and earth as God's kingdom, right? Jesus said that in Matthew 28. He's over it all and he's ruling over it all. But then in another sense, there's a more focused and more specific kingdom in which true believers are actually reigning with God right now. As 1 Peter 2, 9 says, we're a royal priesthood. And we'll get to this in verse 6 as well. But So there's a redemptive kingdom. And again, we'll look at this more next week. But if we're to be consistent interpreters of the Bible, we need to look at this idea of Christ ruling as king and his kingdom in two ways. So there's a redemptive kingdom, and there's also what we might call a common kingdom. And you need to have this distinction in your mind as you read the Bible, because there's a popular teaching today that would try to say there's just one kingdom, and that God's law is applicable in a, in a forceful way to everywhere in this kingdom. And in a sense, it's true that God's law is, of course, applicable, and all people are held up to as a standard. But we have to, if we're going to make sense of the Bible rightly, we have to notice these distinctions in these kingdoms. In the kingdom, I should say. In a sense, so if you're looking at the kingdom of God, like maybe as like a big giant circle, right? So let's say I draw this with my fingers. This big circle is God's kingdom. Everything inside of it, all heaven and earth is inside that big circle. This is the kingdom of God. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. But not everyone in this big circle believes and trusts in Jesus. Not everyone is elect. Some are not chosen. Some are what the Bible calls reprobate. And so within this common kingdom, there's a smaller little kingdom as well that we would call the redemptive kingdom. And it's growing, and it has, and it has been growing even since the Garden of Eden. And, it, and, it, and it's being added to, and when Christ returns to consummate the kingdom, when he comes again for the second time, those who are still in rebellion to him within the common kingdom will be defeated and destroyed, and the redemptive and the common kingdom will be one at that point. Because all of Christ's enemies will be fully gone and everyone will and everyone will be under joyful submission to Christ Jesus. And that will be the way for the rest of eternity. And we'll talk more about this again to, uh, next week in verse 6. But as we see it now, if we're to be consistent Bible interpreters, we need to inform, affirm some sort of a two-kingdom structure, a second kingdom or two kingdoms. I'm choosing to use the words common and redemptive, but you may hear other terms too. So there's a saving kingdom for his people who believe. There's another kingdom through which God rules the rest of the world. It's a creational kingdom or a kingdom of preservation, as Sam Renahan calls it in his book, The Mystery of Christ. You okay? Okay. Uh, so God is ruling the whole world and preserving it until the full number of his people are saved, until all the elect are drawn in, all those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life come to salvation. And so God is ruling both believers and unbelievers. And as this passage highlights, Jesus is ruling the kings on the earth, even though these kings don't submit to him. As Revelation 17, 2 says, they're committing adultery with the great prostitute. They don't serve Christ, but Christ Jesus is still their ruler. They're living in rebellion to him, just as everyone does until they're made part of the redemptive kingdom. And I'll try to, again, try to draw this out more next week in verse six. But this is what Joel Bickey says about in his commentary about Christ's rule over all kings as a warning to those who don't recognize that rule. And just think as well, too, if this was a warning to kings, it's a warning to everybody who's even under those kings who are in rebellion, right? So Joel Bickey would say it like this. He says, let all tyrants tremble because Jesus Christ is king, the prince of the kings of the earth, and they shall have to answer to him for their crimes. In the same way, 
Psalm 2 warns those rebellious kings saying this in Psalm 2, 10 to 12. It says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now will anybody fear the Lord and, and rejoice with trembling if they're not first born again? They're not, right? They're not made part of that redemptive kingdom if they're not saved. They wouldn't. And so if we were to even go backwards in the Psalms and back to Psalm 1, you see a description of citizens of each proper kingdom, the redemptive and the common kingdom we described in Psalm 1. And let me close with this. But the point for us to really take home tonight is that Christ is ruler over all. There is none that have more authority than him. And no one will get away with living in rebellion to him. And it's an encouragement to the churches who will receive this letter from John, of which we are one of them, that Christ is king over all, that he is the faithful witness, that he is the firstborn from the dead, because this triune greeting from the throne of God is showing us that Father, Spirit, and now Son are sovereignly encouraging and exhorting us to look to him, to look to Yahweh in light of whatever comes to pass in our life, whatever sort of difficult situation, and Revelation is going to, going to describe so many of them, this was true for saints in the Roman Empire. It's true for us today, and it has been true, and it will be true for all saints in every period of time between Christ's first and second coming. And we can have joy even in light of calamity, even in light of persecution, in times that are good as well, of course, but most people don't need to be convinced of that. But Christ Jesus has executed for his church the office of prophet, priest, and king. And because that is the case, we should be encouraged. This message from the throne of God is wanting us to capture that. And as it's going to continue to get even better. So to him be glory and praise. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, I know that we had a lot to say tonight. We pray that you'd help us to think about these things more deeply and contemplate them and meditate upon your word throughout the rest of the evening and the rest of the week as well until we come back to you again. Holy Spirit, our flesh would prevent us from doing that at every step of the way. So we ask that you would guide us and you would lead us into all righteousness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Any questions, guys? Discussion? No? Okay.